Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Jay Fielden. For years, he's been a thought leader in the magazine publishing business. He began his career at The New Yorker, where he worked for eight years. Then he stayed within the Condé Nast family and moved over to Vogue magazine, where he was for five years working alongside Anna Wintour until he went on and launched Men's Vogue, where he was editor-in-chief. He was then editor-in-chief at Town & Country and in 2016 became editor-in-chief at Esquire magazine. And when I came across a New York Times profile piece on Jay describing him as having the bellatrist whimsy of Oscar Wilde and the gunslinger gusto of Wild Bill Hickok, I thought, I have got to meet this guy. Jay, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. It's great to be here, truly, truly. A lot Enjoy of fun. I'm always a little extra excited when the cocktail choice requires the cocktail shaker. <laughs> Me too. So this is good stuff. We've got the Rob Roy going today. It makes a good sound. And we are going to be using the Doers 12-year, and I know you're doing some work with Doers, is that right? Yeah, I just did a very cool project with them. Uh, it's always been a scotch that I've uh, you know, felt, I've been very aware of even before I could legally drink it. Um, and uh, they approached me to do this very fun Valentine's uh, project where I would write some notes that people could send along with uh, a, a personalized bottle. Um, and the notes are... I hope amusing. Maybe they have a little bit of that, <laughs> that bellatrist whimsy. Um, That's right to them. And um, the twelve-year-old was was the star of the show. Even though Doers has a number of um, great scotches, and just because they're blended, I should say, means nothing. I think I was even under the misapprehension for many years that blended scotch was somehow inferior to single malt. Where, whereas you know, we don't look down on champagne, which is um, often a blend. It's not always a blend. Um, so the blend just makes it, you know, express a house style that is um, very uh, pleasing, uh, smoky, and very smooth, and um, great for a mixed drink because you're not blowing a hell of a lot of money on it. Um, but it it measures up at a pretty high level in terms of 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 its of its uh, character and and presence in the in the mix. So I really like the Rob Roy. I'm a Manhattan drinker too. Yeah. I think what this does when it has Scotch instead of bourbon, and that's really the only difference between a Manhattan and a Rob Roy is, is it makes it a little less sweet, which I yeah. like, and um, it kind of gives it that Scottish character. And, you know, being a bit Scottish, 
my my grandmother was a Lauderdale. I uh, I like to support Scotland. It is good stuff. We've actually had a couple of calls for Scotch on the show. Nelson Demille is a Doers guy. You can oh, tell cool. your friends back okay, at Doers cool. if he's Great. he's awesome. on Team Doers. Yeah. And um, Jess Walter, author of Beautiful Ruins sure. and Citizen Vince and other great books. Uh, he actually had a tweak, uh, tweak on this. Instead of the Rob Roy, it's the Bobby Burns, another okay. Scotsman, yeah, yeah, yeah. as you know. Yeah, and um, instead of bitters in that one, you yeah. add uh, Benedictine. So it's Scotch, I'll have to sweet vermouth, and Benedictine. It was pretty I good. I love the Benedictine bottle, so yeah. I'll go get one. Yeah. yeah. All right, I love so we, the Benedictines. I mean, I mean, so you could just have that on cube, little little ice. So we've got the Luxardo cherry in, and we're gonna pour. I, I don't want to knock us here. out with a with a giant one, but we're gonna have a pretty healthy sized. Well, Rob you know, Roy here. You know how they how one leads to another. So <laughs> well, that may happen. We'll see. Like twenty minutes in, we're gonna be back to the bar. Uh, well, Jay, cheers. You. It's cheers. Great to cheers meet to you. you, Doug. Yeah. Cheers. Chin chin as they say, somewhere in the world. <laughs> that is good stuff. I hope what that you meets think? your standards. Yeah, see, it doesn't. That, yeah, very finely done. I think you need to have a, you know, new revenue stream, Doug Brunt bar, you know. I, I am right? determined to make Luxardo Cherries pay me for this well, placement true. on the show. It's oh, outrageous. God, but they're delicious. I'm going to keep saying that every time I put a Luxardo Cherry in a drink here. So you were, we were just talking before you got on. Yep. Uh, you were raised in, te- born and raised in Texas, mostly yes, San Antonio. Sure yes. And I read your dad's a dentist, your mom is a ballet dancer. Correct. Very cool. Yes. I, um, I was born in West Texas, as it turns out. Um, and my parents, I think, without insulting West Texas, because I have great affection for it, truly. Um, but I think I probably lucked out not growing up there. Um, I, I kept strong ties my grandparents lived in odessa which is a oil town part of the odessa midland um complex um mm-hmm. f- famed for various strange reasons like you know the bushes decided to go there um from connecticut to try to make their way in the oil business um and some other uh people like that but you know it as as a town it doesn't have a hell of a lot to offer besides um some people with um tremendously good uh senses of humor and actually I think, you know, descendants of the kind of oral tradition Texans sitting around the campfire telling stories. I, re- I really believe mm-hmm. that. I think, I think that's where I got the kind of admiration for being able to spin a yarn. And um, so I'm glad I didn't grow up there, but I'm glad I went back there, and I'm glad I. I and it's that left the mark. It's got them. that oral yeah, tradition that, that kind of left the mark. I also, if I have my history right in reading up on you, it was during your high school years, I guess this would be San Antonio, that you were working in a polo shop. And that's where you decided, <laughs> I don't know if fashion is the right word, but you wanted to work in the sort of fashion lifestyle world. Yeah, that's true. I, I was always drawn to, to I'd say, twin uh, poles. You know, like the the writing thing bit me about 13 or 14 and mm-hmm. up until that point, there was no hint at all that it would. I was not a uh, early reader. I rebelled against reading. I didn't um, want to go to school. I didn't. Um, this, is, this is the uh, wild Bill Hickok I, side I, of you I as opposed so. to the I, Oscar you know, Wilde. Even I look back and I think, like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, for a guy who loves books as much as I do now, it it's so strange to have not had any particular well i had i'll tell you what i had a reaction to books and that was that i didn't like them so at least i did have a reaction <laughs> right. you know what i mean it wasn't like i was yeah. um uh, wasn't malaise passive right you know um <laughs> but then it then it did it did really bite me hard and and it set that 
kind of a compass point up for me that is obviously you read the biography. Uh, I hate to say it like that, but I mean, you know, it, it did kind of set up a certain trajectory for me that, that through, through luck and other circumstances, um, you know, worked out. And, and another one that was happening at the same time was I was just, you know, I was always interested in, in clothes and style and, and a certain, Mm -hmm. you know, guy often, of a writerly literary type who kind of cut a certain figure and, yeah. you know, cared about both things and, um, uh, the world that a lot of these guys would have written about. I mean, even Hemingway, uh, you know, himself, uh, you know, we don't think of him as a, as a clothes horse, but he certainly had a very distinct look, look yeah. you know, yeah. and I think he was aware of it and he knew what good things were and, and why to buy good things. And, um, you know, he noticed that F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, wore a specific kind of rep stripe tie around Paris, um, which, um, is a, is, is one that is modeled on a British regiment, which is very much a kind of like, um, thing to brag about if you're in, but Fitzgerald wasn't and Hemingway therefore kind of made fun of him for wearing the tie. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, he recognized these things. He knew, he knew what clothes could signify and, and, um, for better or worse. And, um, and there were other figures too. So they, to me, that those two worlds just kind of got wrapped up together. And yeah. and I think Polo made sense too because so much of Ralph Lauren's um, uh, uh, inspiration comes from those kinds of mm-hmm. um, iconic American figures and British figures. So it did have resonance with with the world I was interested in. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you, you, you're by the time you got to Boston University, you were studying a lot of English lit. And so those worlds are starting to, to merge there a bit too. I did. I did. Yeah. And I worked again at Apollo shop in Boston. Oh. You know, I went to college <laughs> with, uh, college, with David Loren, who's about our age. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, if you yeah, know. Yeah, him. Yeah, we're, we're definitely friends. He's a yeah. great guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went to BU and I, I, I fell in, um, a, a, a kind of a, a, a very close, friendship mentorship with a literary critic named Christopher Ricks who's still there and a and a kind of monumental figure um in in many ways he's an Englishman he was a kind of star at Oxford in the 60s and 70s and has written a lot of remarkable books about Eliot and Milton and um others Beckett uh etc and he I think he just taught me how to think you know and mm-hmm. he he taught me about in in that best Oxford or Oxbridge, you know, kind of way, like how to be clever about being clever, almost. You know, and I'm not saying I, I I'm you can't be too on clever, the nose. but I, gotta, I yeah, I yeah. know the model of thinking like that, and yeah. the the questions that get asked in order to go in that direction. And I I just found him dazzlingly fun to be around, and 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 a, a great thought provoker. So from Boston, you go to the New Yorker, and you start there in '92. Uh, which is sort of, I don't know if it's the prime time of magazines, but it's still late prime and still really kind of pumping. That was a, an interesting time to be in New York City and, and particularly at the New Yorker. It, it was. I mean, when I think back on that, I, I'm trying to find the way to describe it because it's it's not that far away in time, but it's it's very far away in some other measurement, which I'm not yeah. sure what that measurement is if you know what i mean culturally it seems yeah well for the media landscape in particular it's been like dog years I yes. mean, it just has changed yes. so much oh yeah i mean I, I i was listening to you on a different interview uh as i was getting ready for this and you were talking about newsstands in grand central and you and i spend a bit of time in grand central on sure. a fairly regular basis and there used to be newsstands everywhere to sell magazines and 
newspapers and now they're not there at yeah. all and when you get on the train nobody's thumbing a magazine they've all got their nose in a phone correct yeah i mean the the disappearance of the newsstand is a is you know in other words they've kept even in grand central it's like a tombstone almost because it it is that the shelves still exist but mm-hmm. now they're filled with I don't know, sugar-free gum, gum. Yeah, or, right. <laughs> or, you know, uh, health bars yeah, or bottled mugs, water, yeah, you know, commemorative stuff. mugs. So it's it's even a, a bigger insult than if they just redid the architecture and made it all, yeah. you know, T-shirts or something, but that they're sitting on the shelves that used to hold magazines and newspapers. It's just and not like worth that. having it's the inventory. It's particularly painful, and it, it seems to be the case everywhere. When I went to The New Yorker, I... Um, the interesting thing about it was that it wasn't only, it wasn't just 92 in the sense that, you know, Tina Brown had just been um, made the editor that August, I believe, and I got a job there in October. Um, but what that New Yorker was really teetering on was, you know, its past versus, I think, a very um, uh, sudden future. And so it, it actually connected back a couple of more decades to to that culture. I, in other words, I didn't just, you're asking about kind of where did, where did that, where did it fall in the kind of, you know, the sunlight of the time, you know, like, mm-hmm. I feel like I was still pretty much in the full golden rays of, of, of the New Yorker. Now there are New Yorker writers who argued that the New Yorker like, uh, uh, um, um, sorry, um, it'll come to me cause she's a lovely, lovely writer, um, and lives not too far away from us in Connecticut. Um, but she wrote a book about the death of the New Yorker, and you know, her estimation was that it died in um, nineteen eighty. Renata Adler—that's what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm saying that, and they would think, "Oh my God, you don't know, son. You know, it was way gone by nineteen ninety-two. You know." But mm-hmm. I felt, you know, the point I'm making is that Joseph Mitchell still came into the office. I worked for Roger Angel, who was E.B. White's stepson, um, and whose mm-hmm. mother was the first female fiction editor at the New Yorker. You know, so he reached back to the very, very, very beginning. Um, there was a lot of that generation yeah and, still and, present and yeah first generation it was probably the, the first time you could kind of see around the corner to like mm, this is kind of, this is kind of going down but you were still very much in the in the sunlight as you say it's, it kind of reminds me of another grand central thing that i was noticing today because i you and i are about the same age and i came through grand central in 93 after college and yeah. i was all dressed up yeah. for my <laughs> interview and had the nice shoes on and everything, and there were shoe shine stalls oh, okay. active. I yeah. mean, people were getting yeah. shoe shines. It, by the early '90s, it already had that patina of kind of a throwback. Yeah. But now, I think I, the last time I walked through, I think I saw one abandoned shoe shine stall. It's like it's not a thing anymore. It doesn't well, happen. Well, you're putting your finger on things that are very painful for me, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not that I got my shoe shine all the time, but that also represents, you know, the 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 bygone days of the shoe shine guys. Yeah. yeah. You know, represents a a, a moving on from a certain way of dressing, you know, and, and right. Nobody even probably wears the Allen Edmonds leathers. No, We're all wearing sneakers. Sh- they don't have anything to shine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, we can take your Air Jordans in there. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, from the New Yorker, you go in, I think, 2000 to Vogue. So now yeah. you're still in Condé Nast. Uh, and so listeners know Condé Nast owns the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Vogue, among others. But as I say, those yes. are probably a big three. And so now you're working alongside Anna Wintour, who clearly believes in you and and um, supported you in your career because you, you went on sure to do did. Men's Vogue. But yeah. how was that in the early years of Vogue working along her? Because she's kind of famously prickly. Well, she's direct, I would say. You know, like she's a direct person. I think she, um, you know, has the gift, if you will, of not necessarily needing to show what she feels about 
the reactions she um, elicits from other people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that can be a gift of sorts, I guess, you know, um, uh, she can be intimidating and all those things. Um, but I somehow got along with her. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, she, she was direct with me, too, but I, I, I respected her. Um, I, I learned a lot from her. Um, I had a world opened up to me that again, like if you, if you go back to where we started talking, I was interested in fashion. I'm not at the Vogue level, so to speak. I was not, you know, wearing Azadine Alaya or, or, you know, a super for, for, you know, forward, uh, fashion forward clothes. I was, you know, basically kind of a, a guy who liked Ralph Lauren and, and that, that, that look and feel of 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 menswear at the time mm-hmm. um and anyway so i i now i'm suddenly in a very you know more european um leaning world of style and fashion and taste and i'd always loved europe and i had done some um travel there and so now i really fell into uh, you know having to understand who these people were and mm-hmm. what was being discussed and um and one of the biggest relationships that, that came out of that several i would say i mean i i edited jeffrey steingarten the food critic uh who's a, who's a tremendously uh talented writer uh, basically no longer writing but you know was was the rep- i think of him as being probably the great food writer of the time um you know just term of sen- sentence by sentence not only funny but um you know a, a very a, a highly um accomplished writer and mm-hmm. uh and very difficult to work with at first he kind of hated me and and i kept i kept up the relationship and we became quite close and was fact, there an I'm, age gap i mean you assume you're a young guy oh yeah i mean you're... i would say he's jeffrey must be 25 years older than i yeah. was something like that um and so that was an important relationship it was important for me to be at a place like vogue which is very serious about what it's serious about but wasn't as serious about and this is not a put down, but it wasn't as serious. This would no one would find this as a surprise, you know, about the gray content as opposed to the photo content. Yeah. It actually has very good writing in it and historically yeah. did. I mean, excellent bylines. But Jeffrey was a really, you know, at the top. So I, I had that relationship. I had a, a very close relationship with Grace Coddington, who was the creative director of the, you know, the great penumbra of red hair, you know, around her that she's famous for. I wrote her first book, which was basically a big photographic book full of anecdotes and memories, and I became very close to her and and learned a lot from her. And and then I got to know Irving Penn, too, the photographer, and Mm -hmm. I wrote a profile of him in Vogue, and I I felt, again, a kind of kinship of a certain kind because he was a photographer who didn't really – start out to be a photographer for Vogue, but he, he found work at Vogue and then he turned the kind of work that he did at Vogue into the work that he was also interested in. And I felt like I, I could relate to that, you know, yeah. that you can't always decide where you're going to work, but you can take sta- your standards and creative uh, vision to a place and, and make it right for that place and hopefully right for yourself. So I, I learned that from from the, from all of the, all three of them, actually. Like the only behind the scenes look that any of us outsiders had at that time, and I, I looked this up, the, the novel Devil Wears Prada came out in 03 and then the movie in 06. So those were the years you were there, yeah, at I was least there. between yeah. Vogue and Men's Vogue. And uh, did people working in the industry what was the did they read the, read this or look at this and think you know this is kind of spot on or did Anna Wintour just sort of blow it <laughs> off like this is cause I, I I don't know if it was inspired by or how close any of that was but I think it's pretty close I mean I mean you know there's there's definitely uh, uh, fic, there's fictional moments and fictional characters I think they're 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 kind of uh, uh, what uh, you know conglomerations of different people and that mm-hmm. kind of thing but no I, I think it was a lot of it is quite accurate. Um, 
I never read the book, but I saw the movie. Right. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> um, I knew the the young woman who wrote it at the time, and uh, she used to come to me, and she at the time she wanted to hope she'd find a way to the New Yorker, and kind of thought maybe I could help her do that, and. Um, you know, the next thing I know, she had written this book and left Vogue, and it took off. And and I think, I think, I think Anna was probably surprised. I think at first it was probably like duck and cover, and then it was kind of, oh, this thing is going to make bit, this thing is going to make me yeah. as famous as she now is. I yeah. I don't know if she would be. I don't think she would be as famous if that movie wasn't made. I definitely don't. Right. I mean, the funny thing that goes on in my house, I have two daughters. One is sixteen. One is thirteen. I have a son too, but he's in college. And every once in a while, you know one of their friends or something will 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 realize that that movie is about vogue and then realize that i also work there and yeah. the, the, their eyes will drop out of their head you know what Tell i mean us all about yeah, yeah yeah they'd be like hold on what that was an actual magazine oh that one and that's where you, you know <laughs> it was like um, the instagram of the time that's right, right. um so i mean I, I don't think that book did anything to hurt and i think it or vogue yeah so from from vogue and men's vogue you then kind of jump mother ships from kind of asked you know, yeah. atmosphere over to Hearst to do town and country. Was there a big cultural difference going between the two? There, Hearst there was Esquire, it, as so listeners know. Hearst is the other big, yes. you know, yeah. sort of uh, roll up of these yes. magazines, which owns Esquire and Town and Country and many others too. Yeah, and Hearst is, you know, just to be fair, I think Hearst was always thought to be not as chic, let's just say, as Condé Nast. Right? Mm -hmm. It was. They did have three pretty. Um, high-end titles, Bazaar, Town & Country, and Esquire, but a lot of the other titles were much more kind of what you would consider, again, not me looking down on it, but just saying what it is, uh, you know, they were grocery store checkout magazines, yeah. you know, they they were they were mass magazines, whereas Condé Nast was much more up, upscale. Which is probably why they brought you in, like, get us to the upscale side, and you kind of came in and revitalized, I mean, you, you got tons of great press for, for revitalizing Town & Country, which was your sort of first stop yeah. in the Hearst. Yeah, it sure uh, was. Empire. So, I mean, the guy that, that, that I, I had a Connie and ask connection that took me there. I mean, a couple of interesting things happened, perhaps on the, on the way to uh, what's the saying on the way to the supermarket or something like that. On the way to something, um, uh, I uh, Men's Vogue was closed because of the financial crisis. There were a number of Connie and ask magazines that got the 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 axe. Uh, Gourmet, very sadly, beautiful magazine uh, uh, at the time, a kind of much. Ballyhooed uh, project that Connie Nass had put a lot of money into. Um, a new business magazine called Portfolio uh, eventually got shut down, um, and then you know there were there were others, and Men's Vogue was part of that, unfortunately. Um, so that that was 08, though. So you know, again, go 08 to me is really the death knell of magazines. Um, if if you trace it backward, I, I think that that initial hit of of the finances coupled with the introduction of the iPhone, which was mm -hmm. 06 or 07, right? All these things are kind of coming, you know, combining their their vice-like pressure on the business model and people's attention, you know, with the, with the phone, um, that that was the beginning of a major crack in the facade, right? Mm -hmm. So there were two years where nothing happened. It was completely glacial. I mean, everyone froze in place as an, an economic matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, I kind of didn't know if I would ever go back back to magazines at that time. I started 
maybe writing a different book and and i was in connecticut and our house burned down in the middle of it and i had a two-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter and eight-year-old son we 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 left that house we were we didn't come back into it for two years we rebuilt it um so it was and my father died and you know there's a lot of stuff that happened now bringing up not not as a kind of oh woe is me i just mean that it was a kind of transformative moment in which i made some decisions i think in order in order to go back to a magazine i certainly didn't feel like i was done with my career i mean i was only i don't know i think i was 36 when i became the editor-in-chief of men's vogue that was 2005 and so now it's 2009 i'm 40 i guess mm-hmm. um but the world was telling me that magazines were there wasn't a lot of excitement and there you know the budgets were dying and they 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 weren't starting magazines anymore yeah, right yeah. so that was the end of that that's what i yeah, would say there were not increasing yeah. suit uh, seats for editors in chief you know and they've only dwindled since so uh, a man named david carey who had been the publisher at one point of the new yorker when i was there and i knew him from that time and then became the publisher of portfolio and etc at Condé Nast, was made the president of uh, Hearst, and he called me about town and country. And so I had a connection with him, and I had a reassurance that uh, I certainly didn't look down on Hearst, but I, I didn't, I knew, I was a culturally a Condé Nast editor, you know, and, and I was where, you know, kind of a little bit apprehensive about what it would be like to work for Hearst. And he reassured me about, you know, the kind of backing I would get at town and country. Mm-hmm. We talked about what i thought it needed you know to to recover from where it was and and it and it kind of started there and, and went from there so um it, i did jump ship but i i had i was already off the ship you know yeah. <laughs> i was in my little rowboat i had no <laughs> ship to go to right so i rowed over to the other ship yeah and there was david carey and he helped me up into the ship and then we started from there so well, and, you, and you brought your brand there like your your sort of vision and your energy came there and i know i mean one of the things that that i've admired in, in getting to know more about you is you bring like you've got a little bit of fiction in there which of course i love yeah, like yeah. some fashion yeah. in there but also some hard-hitting journalism and you oversaw some very early days hard-hitting journalism on the on the Sackler family and the Correct. Purdue Pharma thing, yep. for example. So yep. you've kind of got this, you know, blend that you're bringing to, to, the, right. to the property. Well, I was, I'm a big, I think I learned from Tina Brown the power of the mix and also the high, uh, her version of it would be high-low, m- meaning creating tension um, between the elements, you know, that you can have a very... Uh, brainy intellectual piece in a magazine and you can also have one that's just yeah. fun and effervescent and and irresistible you I, know? I love that because I, I think that pertains to it's relevant for both men and women like so for i hear this all the time with women and my wife for example like that women should be able to embrace both their their smarts and their sex appeal side and for men, you, you kind of referenced this earlier with Hemingway and Fitzgerald they should be able to have a serious and a whimsical side yes it's it's, it's great to yep. in fact it's important to have yep. both of those thriving simultaneously i i feel like that's the full experience of life and and you know when i took coming out of texas maybe this is a little bit of a reflection on that i, I felt you know without uh, without stereotyping texas because i i don't think that that's i'm not a big believer in and and stereotypes no matter who you do it to um uh but i i think that there was a sense of like there was a, a very you are aware of a certain kind of masculinity, right? It's it's not that everybody there was part of that masculinity, but certainly it was it was a pretty clear 
idea of what that masculinity was. And and I think it was as as cool as parts of it were, you know, parts of it were also very limiting, you know. And and I and I wanted to kind of get to that place where again, like I was a guy who was saying like, "Well, I like clothes, you know, and, and I don't want to not act like I don't uh, like I don't like clothes because other guys might think that's weird to like clothes, you know. And I like poetry and I don't want to not like that because other guys might not think that's cool or they'd rather talk about football i mean i also like football as it happened to, you know i wasn't i wasn't a kid who was like oh i can't stand sports i'm i'm pretty athletic too i didn't play football but you know so i i kept that i think as a just something i held on to is kind of like i i want to encourage i i hoped that i encur- encouraged people who read the magazines i did especially the men but you know and, and women in a, in a different way but to to kind of do those things that maybe they had convinced themselves or someone else had convinced them not to to do and Mm -hmm. and that that i felt was like limiting your experience of life and why do that because somebody else doesn't like it that you like that i mean that to me is none of their business you know i mean if you can get that across in a magazine i think it's it's really important and one of the things i wanted to ask you about and this is something else i i heard you make sort of a, a remark about in another interview that you've done which is that magazines today reflect only the moment and as a static property the print magazine that's a problem today more than ever the moment is so fleeting mm. by the, by the you know the, the morning news is stale by your next oh, meal yeah. yep and you know we of course we read you know all the time about yep. the sort of success almost the dangerous success of social media in being able to anticipate yes what you want to read or see next so how does a print magazine which has challenges in in being anticipatory how, yep. how does it, how does a magazine a print magazine and that whole industry compete with today's social media <laughs> what am i to give my magic lesson away <laughs> somebody has to come hire me to tell you that here's uh, the, exactly this is here's here's the golden uh, advice oh god well I mean, I, can they do it i mean like if they either they need to find a way to anticipate better or they need to decide to like that battle is lost we cannot anticipate yes. therefore we need to find content that's more durable yes you know we can put some content out that won't expire by the time you know it's lunch I, I kind of go in that direction instinctively in that um i i think people have so much to read now you know it is that mind share scrum that mm-hmm. everybody's trying to get into you know like right now i'm i'm doing some work for the private bank of jp morgan helping them with their um uh kind of fixing their content and helping them you know think about how to sh- share it better engagement and the very thing we're talking about you know mm-hmm. and i mean you know think about it 15 years ago a bank sharing its best insights about the markets or investing or things like that um would really be thinking that they were just competing with maybe it's other two or three banks that wanted the same depositor right or or, or to, to manage that same person's money whereas now they have to compete for the time that somebody will give to something that is not their primary responsibility of the day or the chaos of of the moment or whatever so i i think that you know that that's the problem that everybody's in and it includes magazines and and magazines used to be the thing that you know when you got bored um they would fill up a lot of that that boredom um mm-hmm. now we've you know look at look at I, I often I feel more acutely bored sometimes than I remember feeling 15, 20 years ago. I don't, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Do you ever feel that? I feel like I'm very aware of my boredness, you know, when I'm getting bored and kind of yeah. I'm kind of ashamed about it. But I, I, I admit maybe it. Uh, maybe I'm defining the word different. It's not always bored, but sometimes I do like I as much as I tell my kids not to do it. I'm sure you, you do the same. 
I don't want to scroll, but after I do it, I don't feel great all the time. Like I'll, I'll have, I'll spend, and it's not so much boredom. Like something has fascinated me enough to like go down this crazy, stupid yep. rabbit hole on social media. And I, I admit I'm a victim of this as yep. well. I have Twitter and, and I have Instagram and, uh, but I never feel terrific after I spent 20 minutes doing it. I don't either. Stuff. I don't either. And I think that that's, I don't think that you can't feel better because I think if there was different kind of, there is content on, on Instagram that I can, I, and I try to, you know, on my own feed, I try. I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure there are people that look at that and say, this is, this is, a, there's a bunch of FOMO on my thing. And, and certainly part of the being successful on Instagram, I think is projecting a certain coherent view of a life. Is, is that life true to, to me in the sense that like, am I always swanning around with a new watch or a new <laughs> vintage car, having another cocktail, you know, right. I mean, part um, of that's professional no, for you, exactly. I mean, so, but, so. but I understand that to other people, they must look at that and go like, who is this jackass? You know what I mean? I want to kick this guy in the ass, you know, like I get that, but I try to, I hope talk about these things that are, that are unreachable, you know, f- for me too. I mean, I, I'm certainly blessed in having some nice things, but I, again, I go back to being the Odessa kid. I, I try to remember that, you know, that like, what is it like to feel like you can't get that thing and you'll never have it? I don't want to make those people feel inferior. I want to make those people feel like they can get there because I got there. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and other people got there, you know, so, so I try to, you know, put that somehow work that in there. Am I successful at all the time? I doubt it, but you know, I'm sure there's many people who look at it and say, this guy's a jackass, but, but I do try to do that. Well, you know, on, on the magazine front, um, you know, last question sort of on, on that, but like, will there be print magazines in 10 years or is, cause you know, one of every magazine now has its online presence. And yeah. I'm sure with people magazine, for example, I think their digital side is bigger than the print side. Now I think that, that kind of crossed over recently. And, you know, I mean, you and I grew up in the days when people had their time magazine and their sports illustrated yeah, subscriptions, totally. you yeah. know, and that just doesn't even yeah. exist anymore. Right. Will there be a print offering or is there just no business model behind that 10 years from now? <laughs> I, I'm an optimistic person when it comes to about magazines. At the same time that I don't, that I'm I'm honest with myself about not feeling like I'm finding that many things that I'm genuinely excited about when I go to the newsstand. I'm not, you know, I, I want to be honest. Probably for good reason. I'm not blaming the editors who edit them all. I think it's a very, very hard time to do this with the kind of money and the budgets and all kinds of things that they're dealing with. But I just don't feel you know, the relevance of them, you know, and now I don't mean that it would be more relevant to me if they had Brad Pitt on the cover. I like Brad Pitt, but, you know, I don't think that's the answer like it once was, you know. So I I do think, yes, because I think humans are inherently looking to be amused, right? And they're looking for novelty things. And you and I, as we both just said, get really tired of staring at a screen, no matter how good the information may be. I mean, you can read a, a... you could read a masterpiece of a novel on there. You certainly could go and read a masterpiece that's already been written on the screen. I still find it somehow not as rewarding as the experience of the paper. So yeah. I do think that being said tells me that there's still an iteration of, of a magazine that can be done. But I think it has to depart from a lot of the assumptions and the business models and the people who own them right now. Mm-hmm. It has to go in a backward term. That's one reason I felt Esquire at a certain point was, was like digging my own grave in that I... I don't know if there's a magazine that can reach that many people and be that relevant to all those people. Yeah. I have much better faith in the idea of a small, um, pinpointed, you know, thing that goes into 
We, we, in other words, we know there's a success at doing that if you t- pick a very particular topic. For instance, if you pick watches, you get Hodinkee, right? And every guy who loves watches is going to read that thing. So subject matter specificity can lead to an audience that actually leads to a business model and leads to good journalism and an interesting thing. Can you do it? My question is, because I'm more of a general interest kind of guy, as much as I, I doubt general interest stuff, I kind of wonder, can you do it with an ethos, a tone, a point of view? And I, I think you can. I think I think you can. I, and I think there are some points of view that are not out there right now that yeah. could be out there. I think The New Yorker, for instance, has taken a point of view largely of a certain um, uh side culturally and politically you know that kind of makes it feel like a very specific thing even though it's about a lot of things right Mm -hmm. it it the 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 um what am i saying the 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 focus becomes hard around um it's it the the feeling and i you know i i I have great uh respect for the new york this is you know but i i want to read it like i i read it i read it as always leaning a certain direction okay Mm -hmm. and i think that that's what it uh, patently does and it, it, con- it confesses to it you know so i'm not i'm not accusing it of anything but i think that's been a winning formula for it mm-hmm. um there is no winning formula for a point of view that would would go slightly different uh than that one right now you know they just isn't nobody will touch it and 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 i don't mean you have to Wait, go you, you mean like politically left right yeah yeah because i mean yeah. like i know national review has a has a paper magazine it's nowhere near on the level of the new yorker and things right. like that but i think fundamentally but it's like a non-profit you know what i mean like it, yeah, it, it can't yeah. find a way to be to find enough appeal and enough advertising and enough and i, I don't even know if you need to to, to i'm not saying you should you have to go opposite the New Yorker or something like that. I just think something that is more opportunistically interesting. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, not so wedded to what we've all become wedded to. I mean, when I came up with the New Yorker, of course, it always leaned, leaned genteelly left. That's that's where it always was, right? But it, it had pieces in there that, that in which... It didn't seem to line up with exactly the you know the uh, the the you know the the ten point um, thing that everybody agreed upon. You know there was dissent within the thing. There yeah. was doubt. There was um, iconoclasm. Right. There was eccentricity. There was these things that I think. I miss all those things, you know. Yeah, I want yeah. somebody to challenge the way I think. I don't want to just be reassured that uh, that I, I'm the right, I'm thinking rightly, or I'm on the right side of history. I, I don't. I've never been comfortable with that, and I and I and I don't. I'm not attracted to it. Well, I I think yeah, that sounds right to me that there would be a marketplace for something in print with that longer form, more complex, more thoughtful mix of content because just looking at it in the context of a novel for example i i still am one of the people who prefer to have the paper i want to hold the book and i know people in their 20s and even teens who feel the same so i think that that human instinct will be there you know in generations to come and so there are people who would prefer to thumb through a magazine or something if it's the right content it's you know so easy to get pictures and quick captions to pictures and you know like there's no room for yeah. maxim like yeah. go to instagram it's all there you don't need maxim well, but it's like you know gosh, i guess i can't praise maxim <laughs> well maybe I, I could be wrong no, no, this is no, my no. view but i think uh you're right that for the right mix of content you know i don't know if that means it's closer to a novel or but it just has to be something you know rich and and complex that you want to pour yourself into people might want to hold that or or you know, maybe it's also photo oriented. You know, sometimes if you buy 
the history book that has maps and portrait photos of people sure. in the book and things like that. You want the book. You sure. know, it's not as good on an e-reader and things like well, that. Well, yes, and I'm also of the mind that instead of going this direction, which which everyone seems to go when they say, let's do a, a print version of you know the website or something like, or I just got a new uh, issue of Departures that was, you know, it says on the cover, special print issue. I guess they haven't done a, you know, as I know, they haven't mm-hmm. been in print for three or four or five years, right? But it's almost always the 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 cliched instinct is to make it, um, you know, a ten pound, quote unquote, coffee table book mm-hmm. that is impossible to carry anywhere. Um, it's kind of hard to read anyway. Um, makes you feel a little bit bad. I mean, I think paper you know is okay if you use it wisely but i don't know that i just want it to be you know you know triple stock 15x stock for you know and shiny (laughs) and all that kind of stuff so i actually think it's going the opposite direction i think it's actually creating something that is that is it doesn't have to be that kind of what what would be a cliched idea a luxury magazine you know Mm -hmm. something that is just creatively made of 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 things that that could be all you know could be staple bound and 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 no photographs in it, but but really beautiful typeface and all kinds of other things that are really interesting to look at and stuff like you're talking mm-hmm. about maps and pullouts and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, make it really interactive, almost like yeah. a work of yeah. art. Yeah. So I wanted to, switching gears a little bit. I wanted to ask you about fashion and the Kardashians in a in a way <laughs> that because I, I just can't figure that whole thing out. Yeah. And and you so you've been a you know you've made a close study of fashion yeah. for many years, so you can kind of examine periods of time. And compare and contrast. And I was thinking about the Kardashians. I want to ask you if what's happening with them now is sort of unprecedented in a way. Like, have they done something that didn't happen? And as a thought experiment, the other day I was Googling around trying to find a celebrity from the 80s Hmm. who was sort of famous in the way that they have become famous. And I, I really couldn't find one. So everyone I looked at either you know had a role in a movie or they had a song yeah, or they, yeah. you know, they had some foothold yeah. in fame and celebrity which they may have parlayed into greater fame through sophisticated manipulations of the media and i understand that the media landscape has changed between now and then and there's instagram and other things but i hadn't i wasn't able to find anyone in the 80s who parlayed something out of nothing yeah. you know like it what do you what do you make of the kardashians in terms of their influence on fashion and and culture and society Oh God! Well, I just have to be honest about it. I, I, I I'm not a fan, and and I and I, I, uh, I come at it really from a direction of, um, I just don't appreciate that taste. You know, that's not my sense of, of of glamour or, or chic or or originality or any of the things that I would value. I I I don't I don't mean that everything needs to be a reflection of what I would what I would personally wear or something like that I, I think that's that's silly and you know narrow-minded but but I, I just don't believe the hype so much you know and I, I think it speaks for itself there are plenty of people who think it's lovely and fantastic and they can't get enough but you know I, I think it's it's some weird aberration in which you know they're playing a part um, and they've probably long ago become 
the part instead of who they really are. Right. That's <laughs> interesting know? to say. Yeah, Which is, right. you know, we're all susceptible to that. Like Kardashians Incorporated. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you have to do that. Sure. I remember even being in, a, you know, to a certain extent in a situation like that, you know, as the editor of Esquire or the editor of Men's Vogue or what, you know, like, oh my God, now I'm the mascot. You know what I mean? Like, I, I have to like this and do that and, you know, wear this and think that and not think this and not talk about that. And, you know, those kinds of things, I think, you know, once once that happens, then I think you start to stunt your growth. It's very dangerous, you know. I mean, as, as much as our culture really wants people to inhabit a a a you know a role like that, you know, um, and they're especially if they have a specific job, you know, be that job, you know, let that job define everything about you. Mm-hmm. Um, I in in stepping away from my job, and it's a scary thing to do, you know. I I kind of have found the liberating you know, part of that, which is I don't have to do that anymore, you know? So, I mean, if I look at them, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time really paying a great deal of attention, but, you know, I look at the landscape of pop culture. So of course I, I know, you know, who they are and and what they do. I just, I'm like you, I, I would have to say I'm completely befuddled as to how they've, um, you know, kind of maintain the stranglehold on people's attention for as long as they have. For as long as they have. Like, I could see it for a bit. You know, Paris Hilton kind of phased. I remember that. I remember once with a buddy, once I'm watching her come out of some event, she's like, she said something stupid on stage and, and they asked her about it. She goes, oh, well, you know, we really want to say something controversial or hot. Yeah. Like, do you remember when she was yeah. trying to trademark the phrase hot? Yes. Like, everything yes. was hot. Oh, my God. It was I just mean, so idiotic. And then finally that went away. Thank yeah. God. But it took longer than it should yeah. have. But the Kardashian thing is just like yeah. never ending. Well, look, may, maybe for me, I have to say, maybe because I, 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 I aspired to and admittedly to 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 trying to hide my Texas background or, or part at parts of my life, you know, like not having to admit that I was from Odessa, you know, which was, has plenty of of mobile homes and 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 people with, you know, again, I'm not I love these people. I'm not saying that I got yeah. lucky and I moved on and I found some other things. It's not their fault that that they might not have the taste that you would if you've been to Paris a hundred times in your life. But my point being, and this is a criticism of myself, not them, that I I probably I I I don't aspire to want to want to be a cheesy version of 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 um, the current idea of what taste is. You know, like mm-hmm. I I'm afraid of that. You know, I'm afraid it's too close to maybe what I knew growing up. You know, yeah. I yeah. want to know what it means to to have truly refined taste. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to be truly informed about the things that I like, and and to to know that they connect to something historically meaningful and hopefully meaningful to people in some way. That even though it's fun and it's it's diversionary and it you know it does have to be um eating your broccoli it, it's also not just completely worthless you know and maybe uh, uh, uh is born out of a sex tape you know like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff i feel like i don't have a lot of respect for that I'm well sorry. i mean it's amazing I mean, we all make mistakes, the market but power get it. that they've got i mean they 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 go to the met gala for example speaking of our old friend and and they're on the cover of every magazine you can think of you know but i mean let alone the instagram and everything else so yeah. uh um, wanted to ask you now. Well, I'm glad we gave him some airtime. Yeah, exactly. Okay. exactly. Here I mean, we are. Like know, I'm, I'm part of the problem. The positive, but we did pay, <laughs> you know, our, our, you know, our, our attention to the gods. Exactly. Yeah, we had, we had to do it. We're, we're talking about magazines and Instagram, like naturally. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses. Plus, updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Wanted to ask, what is next for you? So you're working with Doers, you're working with J.P. Morgan. Yep. You are very telegenic, so the listeners know Jay is very <laughs> telegenic. But he's also got the the voice Thanks. for radio and tons Thanks. of experience. Thanks. So what's uh, what's up? Well, you know, I, I it's a it's a real it's a been a real road. I have, I have to say, I I I think you know to, to be honest, um, you know, I've had to really think hard about what it is I want to do. I, I think. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. I've never been able to figure that out um, for some reason. Um, I think I finally have found one. I'm excited about that. I don't want to talk myself into it, but I don't feel like in this case that I am. So that feels very different because I've tried to talk myself into some books and just mm -hmm. felt wrong. You probably know the feeling of that. Um, uh, well, you, it's a decision to spend your next couple yeah, of years of your life yeah, with something, yeah, and yeah. you know you may or may not. That's right. What That's about right. something smaller? I mean, Substack, for example, is like you know. Uh, the well, there's Earth, a couple. Or, uh, of, yes, there's like a couple. Graydon of things. Carter has something going on with Air yeah, Mail right. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, no, and I, I, I like that. So quite listeners of Graydon Carter is the former editor in chief of Vanity Fair. Yep. Until I think 2017 or so, and has this new thing called Air Mail. But uh, I think Air Mail is a very, very good looking thing, and a, and and a, a very lively, um, and and you know, often counterintuitive, you know, kind of thing as Graydon is, you know, being the talented, you know, uber talented guy he is. I think I think it's a very impressive thing. I like it a lot. I've written some pieces for it. Um, I'm working on another piece right now for it. I think it's, you know, the only problem with that is, you know, you don't get rich doing it, you know, as with any place. So, you know, no, what, no knock I, on I checked that. It out. It's, like, it's an $80 annual subscription. Yep. And worth like what kind of stuff do you find there? Oh, I think I think it's very much a reflection of what you would expect from his taste in his in his his years of Vanity Fair. It's got a slightly more international flavor. Mm -hmm. So you know his his way of describing is is that it's 
you know, an airmail is, is is kind of a description of it in and of itself. But it's 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 basically kind of a um, weekend section of a newspaper that would be covering both sides of the Atlantic, and so it would have everything from, you know, serious. You know, he's a great master of the mix. It's it's from serious um, reportage to 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 wonderfully delightful things. You know, from mm-hmm. the celebrity world, fashion world, food world, controversy. Uh, um, essays, literary things, art things, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot. He produces a lot week in and week out. I mean, it's, I would say at least as much content as the New Yorker, you know, so it's, it's very impressive in that way. And, and it looks really good. And and I think it's the closest thing that I've seen to a magazine experience and in a digital format. Um, and, and, and in that you, you feel like, you know, you're still on a screen, but it, it, it has the texture and the, the 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 visual panache that 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 he brought to Vanity Fair and and you know I'm I'm jealous of it you know I have to be honest um, <laughs> well you you so it sounds like you contributed a couple pieces yeah I have I, I have and I I've got a some something that I'm working on uh, right now and and I uh, what was I going to say I I think um, Back to me. Enough about you're, you're welcome, Graydon. <laughs> He's fine, guys. Okay. He's fine. Um, I uh, I do I do think about the Substack thing. I have thought about some kind of newsletter myself that would be aimed at a certain uh, 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 you know, kind of swath of, of guys mm-hmm. that I think the men's magazines have totally ignored, including like, I don't think there's any magazine that's trying to talk to me, um, you know, in, in the men's realm. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, probably not to you. So that to me is weird. And, and I think we're the guys that actually have a little bit more as, as would have been the, the pitch during the days of men's Vogue. There's a guy out there. He's, he's got a sense of who he is, what he likes. Uh, he's always on the lookout for new, interesting things, especially if they connect to, other men of interest or, or moments of interest, historical, um, you know, you can bleed that out into a larger cultural moment. It's not just like, here's a new belt, here's a new pair of pants, get mm-hmm. these striped socks. It's not that. It's It's got a kind of context in which to show it. And I think with watches, wine, whiskey, cars, um, uh, a, a certain experience in life, a certain sensibility in life, you know, it can connect into books and, and ideas and all that kind of stuff. Though, though if it has that fine um, aperture that you're looking through of the kind of style and taste yeah. and you do it in a way that's not silly and uh, 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 lightweight, I think there's really an audience that would, would go for that. The question is, where it, what's the business model with it? And, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've been working and talking to various people about, you know, how would I do that? Now, I could either go out and do that thing when, you know, when, when money is at 8%. I don't know if I want to do that. You know what I mean? It's, right. It was one right. thing when it was 2.5 or yeah. whatever, you know, now that away. makes it a lot harder. But, you know, going the Substack route, I think could be an interesting thing. I, um, you know, and I, and mean, meanwhile, I've done these interesting projects for, for first for Bridgewater, the hedge fund out in Connecticut oh, yeah. that Ray Dalio runs. You know, I did, I did some work for them right out of Esquire that was similar to the stuff I'm doing for JP Morgan. And, you know, that, pushed me in a direction to be in a totally different world that I had never been a part of and to get to know the finance, the financial, economic, you know, uh, estate planning world a lot better and at a time when it's particularly interesting, you know, and relevant. Um, and that's given me a, 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 a large part of my brain to myself, 
right? It doesn't mean that I don't think very hard about what I'm doing for them, but I know how to help them, I think. You know, I know exactly, I know at least how I would go about helping them and getting to the right solution. Um, And, and so it's, it's less taxing on the brain than like running a magazine and a website and an Instagram and getting attacked and, you know, sued (laughs) and this and that and everything else. Right. Right. Um, And so I've, I've found that like kind of a great, like interesting thing to to juggle because i have that and you know i go and i meet these people and they're really interesting people and they're they're very different than kind of people who are in magazines in some cases actually there are magazine people there now oh my god you know because you know all these places have to tell their story now you know we're living going back to the that idea of of you have to reach the customer or the reader whatever you want to call it the client you know and the best way to do it is digitally yeah so they need to be good at the things that we were really good at once upon a time at magazines, right, right. Well, whatever you do next, whether it's Substack or or uh, or a new magazine property, I'm I'm a subscriber to Jay Field. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. We'll have another drink when that happens. Totally. Well, one more question before we get into the lightning round, because you referenced this earlier. You had a fire uh, at your home in 2010, yeah. And I, I actually read about that and uh, traumatic for sure. You yes. also mentioned that it was oddly freeing. Yeah. So that classic cliched question of you know there's a fire in your home mm-hmm. and what would you say that that is no longer an abstraction for you <laughs> yeah so h- how would you answer that question well i i tell you what i saved i was working on a book at a time and i took my computer out and the the papers that were involved with the with the thing well first i got my kids out i got my dog out the cats i couldn't find because they're cats and they do things that you know cats do which is I, run I, away I, when you try I to save them i'm afraid to ask but did they find their way out the firemen got them out okay they good, found these good. sooty cats um and we still have them so sooty they've they've had a long life years on you still have them okay the good smoke them. did not hurt them i guess All they right. could smoke cigarettes if they want um <laughs> so and then i got that out and that was it so everything else uh, went up in flames um you know everything else it was they did or put they did they put, yeah it was water damage yeah. smoke damage fire damage you know it was a combination yeah. of things um so you know there were some things that survived of course but mm-hmm. you know we didn't know it at the time and i i you know when i was scrambling around trying to get a garden hose and break into the front part oh of the God. living room where there's some gla- you were glass fight, you were you were like uh well i could the, hear what's you the know, baldwin brother you know when you, you <laughs> backdraft when you live where where we live i mean you might be a little closer to town but you know there's no fire hydrants on the road and there's there's oh, not right, a lot of you right. know so yeah. you know they don't it takes them a while to get there i could hear these these eerie mm-hmm. sirens coming for 10 15 minutes so oh I, could, God. I couldn't just stand there. You know, it was the strangest thing. Was there a was moment like a, we just recognized this is beyond fighting? Like the garden, this, the garden yeah, hose isn't going to do it. Absolutely. It was a John Cheever. It was a John Cheever moment, man. Oh, you man. just stood there and watched the flames. You uh, know, like, right? Was your wife home at the time? Uh, we were all there. So you're all. It was five o'clock. And this. She was cooking dinner, and we thought we had burned something to start with, and and, and in fact, we had burned something. So it was a, you know, it was a a, a, a red herring. Um, um, uh, and then suddenly this uh, this black smoke just poured out of the cracks um, around a chimney that we have in the middle of the house. We live in a modernist house that was built in 1960. So, you know, it has kind of funky, uh, uh, a funky, very much like a loft layout. And anyway, the smoke just as black as you can imagine. You know, What's, it, what started the fire? Was it out of that? It was a um, an appliance uh, that had malfunctioned uh, in the basement. 
Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Whenever I say that, people are like, what? what? What was it? What do you have? What are you, you know? And I say, well, it was a dehumidifier. Say, well, I have a dehumidifier in my basement. You know, so I would just recommend if you have a, de- here's my advice. You're going to ask my advice. If you have a dehumidifier in your house, I would suggest a professional grade dehumidifier, <laughs> not one from, from Costco or was Lowe's or whatever. Was there some sort of like, uh, you know, recall lawsuit associated with this uh, thing? I mean, yes. Burn of your course, house I down. can't talk about that, Doug. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, I'm glad you, uh, survived so on from from that harrowing and sad yeah. and yet i don't know as you say oddly freeing moment it was a phoenix moment man i mean you know Can't all the cliche, all the cliches are true you know more more power to you for turning yeah. that into something that uh i mean the fact that you said oddly freeing is um you know it takes some wherewithal to, to well have most fires dis- i'll tell you another thing that happened most as i told was told by everybody when you have a fire you then have a community of people who've had fires you suddenly find all these people had fires and you you know get to know everybody and whenever there is a fire suddenly you reach out and you say hey we've had a fire too and you know you try to offer advice and sympathy and hopefully no one dies or something like that and it does happen obviously um so there's a community oddly a kind of hidden community of people with fires which is really um, an indicator of how traumatic that experience can it be. is it is yeah. but it's a bonding moment i mean you can meet yeah. a stranger who, who you know in an airport and if they had a fire and you had a fire suddenly you've got a bond there yeah. you know it's yeah. like you'll know each other forever perhaps so but the other thing that they'll a lot of them will tell you is that they ruin marriages you know, that you have a fire and it'll basically the stress of a fire and the rebuild and, the you know, the money and the whole thing that goes on and just losing things, who knows what else, mm-hmm. will destroy a marriage. That's a typical thing. I don't know the percentage, but I know it's high. And it didn't destroy our marriage. I think it only made our marriage stronger. So if, if as you're saying, you know, it wasn't just me who found a way to survive that fire. You know, I think the, I the family a wonderful unit wife yeah. who is, is one strong cookie, very wise person. And I and I, I think the family and the whole thing, you know, it just made us rely. You know, look, I mean, it's the things you ex- you would expect that we're all afraid to do, which is rely on each other and your friends. We lived with with friends for three weeks in their house, you know, like we you wouldn't choose to do that you know i mean even if you're really good friends you're probably like well i mean i kind of want my own bathroom back right you know but <laughs> you know so things these things happen where you're, you you just discover that there is uh a way to survive in life in a way that you didn't perhaps anticipate or dream about and yeah. and it's nice to find that out well Always better to go into the lightning round on a happy note. So thank okay, you for yes, thank absolutely. you for delivering that in your, in your yeah, genius editorial yeah. <laughs> way. I also noticed we're both out of drinks. I could drop a little more oh, Doers sorry. Twelve. It's just going to be basically Doers yeah, over Cherry me. at this point. Thank um, you. Just, uh, just uh, a sip to get us through these next little I'll bit. I'll stumble back to Grand Central. <laughs> you and me both, <laughs> where there are no newsstands or shoe shines available. All right. So first question yeah. of the lightning round: Your favorite book as a kid. As I said, I didn't read, but there were a couple books, and and it depends on how you define kid, but I would say Stuart Little, Trumpet and the Swan, those things were books I actually loved and were like very meaningful to me. Um, Oddly, they did not encourage me to read anything else um, until I read The Catcher in the Rye uh, by way of a girlfriend uh, putting it in my hand and saying, I think you'll like this book. And uh, um, now, uh, oddly, I mean, I don't want to blow anybody's cover, but, you know, Salinger's been a writer that's meant a lot to me through my life mm-hmm. i've been interested in him for a long time i know a lot of people it's hardly unusual it was obviously pretty heady to be an editor in the fiction department at the new yorker and to be able to go into the rolodex and see jd salinger's address right yeah. um and things like that so um uh, as it turns out his son lives close to me um and i've gotten to know him in the strangest most coincidental way 
uh, and I still can't quite get over that the writer that I think probably, you know, the book and the, the other books, but that book in particular that really like gave me a complex about wanting to be a writer, um, mm-hmm. uh, that his son lives within, you know, a, a bike ride away. And, and if it's true that there are Salinger novels, that those novels are probably, or books, that those books are probably in that house and like, Great. you know, wow. it's just hard for me to get that. I mean, it, it, yeah. it sounds silly, but it's weird. That, I love that story. It, it's fun for for so many people. There is sometimes a book that really was the leaping off point for like really getting passionate. I mean, for me, it was Sun Also Rises by Hemingway, which I reread yep. about every five love or six too. years. Yep. And just, uh, but I, I love Salinger too, and uh, Franny and Zoe and, totally. and uh, Catch the Rye. I have I have both of those. Yeah, I, I get first editions of if I can afford yeah. it. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I would know, too. Yeah, yeah. So, Absolutely. But, uh, book or books you're yeah. reading now. Well, so part of it, you know, I, I do I do read a lot. I mean, n- n- not that uh, uh, I'm trying to brag about it, but, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that I, I missed a lot of years not reading. So I'm very, <laughs> you know, guilty when I'm not it. reading. Um, so part of it is I'm reading toward this idea of this book I have. So there's a bunch of stuff that I'm reading that is around is, the body is of that stuff. Is this book fiction or nonfiction? It's nonfiction. nonfiction. Um, and it is, a, it is a strange, interesting story. Um, I can tell you a little bit about, about it. I'll, maybe I'll swing back to that. But the, the other books that I'm reading, um, I am reading uh, Bonfire of the Vanities because I, I got to know Wolf when I was at Esquire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I admire him a lot. And I'm, I miss the satirists um, that we once had and the iconoclasts mm-hmm. and the, you know, uh, the counter artists, you know, uh, types that that made magazines so fun to read yeah. for instance quick, quick question yeah. on that like you know a huge tom wolf is a huge name yeah. and even when he was a huge name he was writing pieces for magazines and as you mentioned earlier i think hemingway and fitzgerald contributed to magazines back in their day is that happening as i know it happens i mean there 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 are pretty well-known names but are the biggest names contributing pieces for magazines these days i think less because i think they see it in books or they see it in 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 uh Po, you know, podcast. I mean, a series and 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 podcasts, mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. see it in in a series on you know Netflix, or they see that that's the way to reach it, and that's also the way to get paid a wage that allows you to spend two years finding a story. Like if I think of Michael Lewis, you know, a guy who obviously is a big name and has been very very successful. I don't. I don't. He doesn't really yeah. write for magazines. So anymore, if Tom you know, Wolf so. was doing this back in the eighties for a magazine, was he getting a big check from the magazine? Yes. Yeah, he'd get yeah, paid pretty absolutely. well. More yeah. more than a magazine yeah. could afford these. Get days. this. So Esquire, one of the coolest things they had was we had an old closet that had a bunch of historical material in it, an archive, basically. Um, and they had a, a, a little, like the New Yorker did. So it was very you know, similar. And I used to spend a lot of time there just because I liked the smell of old paper. And and I, I would go in there and they had a, a, a card catalog that had all of the, they used to have these very beautiful assignment cards that they would type. Of course, somebody would type whenever the assignment was given out and it would have the, the date and it would have the the literary agent, the address of the writer, how much they were paying, you know, roughly the the size of the piece, et cetera. So, you know, names in there from Faulkner, I mean, go just Hitchcock, uh, uh, you know, both writers, non-writers, uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, obviously all the famous late, late, latter-day Esquire writers from Norma Mailer to Gore Vidal to William F. Buckley to, you know, just Joan Didion, blah, blah, blah. Um, y- y- there was Treatment Capote, okay, of course, right? Um, and he wrote a piece, and I'm trying to remember what that piece was because he went on Johnny Carson, and I remember them showing the, I can remember the, the so it's in the 70s, right? Early 70s, late 60s. 
he was paid $25,000 for this piece. Okay? Wow. The card said $25,000. Okay? So this is 1971. Now, what would that be? I remember at the New Yorker, without with though I would need a fact checker to make sure this is right, Naipaul was paid, I think, $175,000 to do a two-part piece that would retrace his steps um, that he had taken to write the book Among the Believers. Um, oh what, what would it be today? Five and it didn't grand. run, by the way. But, you know, yeah, today, Five grand I mean, twenty twenty three dollars you'd get ten grand. I yeah. mean, but that would be really, like, uh, unusual. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I wrote a piece on Hemingway for the Wall Street Journal. You're talking about 1500 bucks. You know, like, uh, uh, that's just the the, mm-hmm. the way the business has gone and and it is what it is but it, you can't you know you can't make a living out you've got to have you've got to have all these things that we're talking about you got to have a podcast you got to have a yeah. you know a, 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 a hopefully you've 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 got a book deal and you've got a, a netflix deal and you've got this deal and this uh, you know and I, I actually think that having all those deals and all those things is great i i would probably be much better at that than just sitting and write writing one book one all day big long. Tome. yeah yeah all right let's see all right, next question is one example of a print magazine that you believe is still worth subscribing to. Can I take the fifth? <laughs> if, if you might. Hey, listen, you're, you're out there. I, I have to give you a pass on that. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's, I totally get it. There I mean, are some. There are some. Yeah. There are some. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, it's not the only one. It's one yeah. example. So you can give three examples. Yes. That helps. Yes. But, but uh, you have a pass. Most stylish Hollywood actor, male and female, one one of each of all time. Because I I notice on your uh, on your Instagram, which people should check out, it's great. These Thanks. great photos, but you have a photo of Ralph Ellison. You have a photo of yeah. Robert Redford, Sean yeah. Connery. Yeah. And, like as a like a cool stylish yes. photo with a little you know thought about yeah. it. So who, who do you think are um, top female and male? I mean, I think I shift through things just like I shift through you know. Uh, 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 you know, a love of this wine or that wine. In other words, I'm you know, I, I I have a lot of different ones that I like, and and certainly there are plenty of cliches out there. I think somebody I've been really kind of interested in lately, just because I started looking at pictures and I went down that rabbit hole we spoke about, is Gregory Peck, and I I knew I knew from uh, the the Savile Row tailor Huntsman that he had his clothes made there, and and they're they're great. Is that a London? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They're a great, uh, you know, they're a great uh, English tailor that has been around for uh, probably at least 150 years. I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly when they do were founded. They have founded. a U.S. presence, or would he have they to do. go over to London? They do. They have a like, shop even on in his uh, day. They had a shop here. Uh, no, no, they you wouldn't have. have. Okay. I'm pretty sure they would not have had that. Um, they do have a small shop here that is like on a third floor in a building where you go. It's a very nice kind of atelier, if you will. A glass of champagne. Um, while they yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Out. You yeah. should go. Come on, man. I mean, you know, suit <laughs> will last you, you, know, you for 10 every years. Every time I dress up a little bit more in the morning, my wife notices, like, the day goes better. Well, I've heard something about Mickey yeah. Mouse, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's very funny. Yeah, so I am. In fact, do I? No, it's not today. But I, I do uh, often wear a Mickey Mouse T-shirt, for which my wife is constantly ribbing me. Yeah, that's well maybe it's a Maybe it's a Disney thing instead yeah. of just the mouse. But, well, yeah. Um, uh, well, okay, so Peck, because let me just finish that because I think it is interesting. So Huntsman made all his clothes. The thing you see about Peck most of the time in a lot of stars is black and white pictures. Now, black and white pictures can be very, you know, uh, stylish and cool. But when I went to Huntsman one time, they told me about these clothes that they had found, this trunk. Maybe it was his son who had found this stuff, a bunch of his uh, shirts and stuff. Huntsman made shirts um, back then as well. And all the stuff is extremely colorful. 
Okay, so you don't get that in the black yeah, and white. If you look yeah. at him, you think, "Oh, this guy's he, you know he's so wearing drab. gray flannel yeah. into this." No, no, no. He was wearing very colorful stuff. And obviously, later in his life, I think what he did really well is, I don't like you know uh, really, um, I, I I don't like um, people who are just trying to dress like the past because they do it in objection to you know our more casual world now. So I, I don't like the kind of look of of, of super foppish you know twee dressers you know um trying to prove a point with their wax mustache or something like that and neither do i like the kind of faux give a shit you know kind of look that like might be pete davidson or something like that right you know that kind of skanky i just don't like that you're still kind of right? hold steady in the ralph lauren world I, that aesthetic is kind not of not that they haven't evolved they have yeah yeah, yeah 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 but peck is a great example of a guy who grew older oh my god how did that happen and he 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 his his the way he dressed evolved and took in some of the cues of the moment but it always remained him you know so he didn't ever look out of date but he never looked like he was trying to overreach for his age either so he's just a cool model for that as far as a woman i mean it's kind of easy to say it but i think kate blanchett always looks amazing you know and that's just pure observation of like she looked to me the best at the oscars i couldn't watch the oscars but i did see what she wore i thought she looked amazing i think if you go back through the things she's worn in the past she wears it extremely well it's natural to her it doesn't look like a costume Mm -hmm. it doesn't look too fake like too many people got involved telling her what to do you know it seems like she has a sense for it so i like it because it feels authentic and i also just think it's really tasteful and well done of course there are many 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 people but she comes to mind just because i just saw that picture of her and i thought she looked really well i do uh, like it's that balance of uh, you can take a risk but you're not just going for pure attention on the crazy factor you know yeah like, she's not, doing not wearing that. a meat dress like lady That's Gaga, what I mean. you know, but when you right. see that you know when you see it really done well mm-hmm. you don't need to do that other stuff yeah you know yeah. i mean this idea that that can get attention yeah, absolutely so good because yeah. it's so good yeah. you know all right so on a related topic tom brady is tom brady stylish or is he just all over the map He's a guy with a lot of money, I think. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, money helps you buy expensive stuff, you know, and some expensive stuff is good and some of it's not and, and some of it's appropriate and some of it's not. Um, I, 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 I think he I think his his wife has a lot of natural style, but though she's probably not the most stylish of models. She's one of the most beautiful, but she's I don't think somebody that a lot of the fashion world would think is incredibly she's not like a thought leader in, yeah in, in the fashion, style yeah. world she knows what style is but in a, you know and she wears the clothes yeah. well but she's not like you know her own original i don't think she's just like you know moving moving the needle on what style yeah. is quite but i i think he's a bit of a lost dude when it comes to what he looks <laughs> like you know he wears a lot of tom ford i think he's given you know thoughts by other people and he adopts right. them and i just don't know probably by her for at least a few years i think I mean, that's she, true he was trying on a new haircut i think that's true yeah like he's got all those haircuts and, and yeah. you know I, I there's something inauthentic about it i think yeah. you smell it you know yeah. and i think there's something that comes through without i'm not trying to character assassinate him but I, th- I think there's something kind of he strikes me as a person who's kind of um you know opportunistic right and I think well, maybe you reach through. a level as you say reach a level of wealth and a level of fame you've got advisors for almost everything but it's like you know at some point you can dress yourself you know i mean maybe get a little advice my wife shops for me so maybe i'm not one to talk but you know you can dress yourself 
You know, yes, and uh, you know, look, my wife has opinions. I think I changed clothes three or four times a day before I came to the city. <laughs> well, you know, knowing you were going to be here, I did. I had, gave you some extra thought this morning. I was like, okay, I got to look, you know, pretty good today. So I, sadly, this is where it landed. This is what I pulled off, but. You look right. great, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Can't go wrong with black. From you, that means something. Yeah, yeah black is Black a, is a uniform. Safe. I learned it from Grace Coddington. You know, she had a uniform. She wore a lot of the same things almost every day. Anna did, too. Anna has, like, five outfits and re-wears them throughout the season. Is that right? And then buys more stuff. Yeah. But, but it's, like, five essential core Five, obviously, looks. you know, probably couture pieces that, like, no one on, on planet Earth could afford, but they're beautiful, extraordinary things, and she you know work works them to the bone and then she you know then fall comes and she gets another set well that's amazing right, but, but it's like, not a lot and she doesn't you know she i think you don't want to miss it she's not a clothes horse i mean she's mm-hmm. had a lot of clothes over time but i think if you went and looked in her closet my sense is she would have that you know those 10 things she's wearing and then she would add in you know but like okay, at the end of the season it's all gone and there's yes, a new season yes and she won't go back to like fall no. 23 when no. it's fall 24 no It'll be a new fall tournament. It's yeah. always forward. Yeah. But it's like in during that season, there's like a five core outfits. Five-ish. And then, you know, for the special events, right? You yeah. know, a special dress, a special this, a special that. But in terms of the work, it's it's the Monday through Friday outfits, basically. All right. For women and listening. I mean, that's like the pointy yeah, it's a end, great top lesson. of the Don't triangle, fall for the idea so. that you need to have like an eight, you know, eight closets of clothes. Yeah. You just need to have one closet of good clothes. Yeah. Oh, that's good advice. Well, say, say that's one piece For of men good too. advice, but there's yeah, a yeah, question yeah. on that coming up. Men too, right. All right, favorite few recent TV shows that you would recommend to listeners? I, did you see that uh, series called Clio, the no. German? Uh, I don't speak German, but I love to listen to it. Um, uh, I'm going to write that it's, down. Okay, Clio, K-L-E-O, and it's it's a, uh, I think it's a, 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 true, a true account, though it, it's, it's quite, Hilarious. I mean, there's some very, very, very funny moments in it of a of a West kind of West East German, you know, the breakdown of the wall and a and a a, a a spy kind of moment going across. And Cleo is a is a is a female protagonist who who kind of plays the part. And it's just fantastically well done. Great. Where, where do you find that? Is it Netflix? Or uh, yeah, it's Netflix or Netflix. or you know one of those. It's either. Let <laughs> me give it like it's it's either Reed's Empire. Or Bezos's empire. I don't know which one. You know, <laughs> didn't read. I just read some article on. Well, that's another story. I think it yeah. read, he's sort of like in some Utah ski chalet chilling out. Yeah, I think they've all moved on to other interesting yeah. things like chilling out. <laughs> right, like, as you do when you're worth hundreds of or billions of dollars. Uh, craziest office place moment in your career as an editor. I mean, the problem with that is there were a lot, you know, obviously. So I, just because I was there at a time when it got pretty wacky. Uh, uh, I mean, it could be celebrity. It could be fights. It could be... Um, Literal fist fights in the office. I almost got in a fist fight at the New Yorker one time. Yeah, that was pretty fun. Uh, well, you were young. You could probably yeah, take well, you, yeah. that one you could take on. Fuck yeah, man. I'm from Texas. <laughs> I'm not taking any crap. Um, uh, that was kind of weird. Finnegan, was it? That was, was kind of weird. No, no, no. I like Bill a lot. Bill, I, I he was on the show I know, early I know. days. Great no, guy. he's a wonderful guy. I don't think Bill would ever pick a fight. Yeah. Um, uh, I uh, well, I would say a, a very memorable thing is J- David Harbour, the actor from Stranger Things. He's a wonderful guy who plays like, the sheriff. Yeah, right? he plays yeah. Hopper. Uh, came in to visit me one time at Esquire and um, noticed that I had an open road Stetson uh, in my office, which is you know something that like every Texas highwayman wore for fifty years, right? And it's the one that Hopper wears. Uh, and so he put that on, and we got into some crazy. 
he's a guy who will just do anything. And so he started kind of playing Hamlet to my lady Macbeth or something. And we like got in this like Instagram photo shoot where we ended up breaking a, a mid-century marble uh, Hearst-owned um, coffee table that I later had to kind of account for while we were doing this thing. I still have the pictures. I'll send them to you. Yeah. In which he was just off the wall, you know, brilliantly fun to be with and and was up for anything in terms of making an actually bizarre picture that people would pay attention to. And I think it's the first time I ever broke a piece of furniture in office, you know, like without <laughs> intending to, at least. What year was um, this? That was like 2017, you know, 2018, right? Right in, you know, pretty prime. Yeah. He and I are still in touch. I mean, we, we look back on it. You know, I love that show. He's that, awesome. Uh, he's I mean, really it's, awesome. So it's the era, again, and you yeah. and I, same age, kind of grew up with the Trapper Keeper folders yes, for high school. Yes. Oh, and like, yeah. They oh, nailed yeah. the, the era of the 80s. The banana so well. seats yeah. on your bike. The Schwinn the, banana Oh, seat. come on, man. <laughs> Dude, I still wanted the Huffy. My mom oh. wouldn't get it for me. All right, last question for, yeah. for Jay Field and one piece of good advice for the listeners. I guess if I if I think about it from a writer point of view, and probably this is for people a little younger than we are, but like get away from email, man, when you're doing a piece. Like get on the phone and or go have coffee with people. And I would say for any kind of thing where you're really trying to make a good have a good outcome, you know, like even if it's that you're an editor, you're a young editor and you're trying to create either you know trying to edit a piece and make it better or you're trying to come up with a with a special package for a magazine or a website or or a special theme or you know where you're work where you need to work with another group of people make it make it in face to face and i i just don't think that should be underestimated i go to so many places where they're you know there are even places where i would go and and everybody's well, people will be in the same office having Zoom on the same floor, mm. that oh kind of God. thing, right? That's mad. And, you know, I just, I mean, it's part of the culture of, like, taking away, it's it's part of the culture of hot desking, which I've discovered, you know, that you don't necessarily know where you're going to be sitting, so you just mm -hmm. do a Zoom, you don't know if the person's going to be in or out of the office, and then it ends up that, oh, we're all in the office, but we're all on Zoom, right. <laughs> and you look to the right, and, and there's and the person are. you're on the Zoom with, you look to the left, <laughs> and there they are, you know, so I think you... I've just I just think that that old fashioned part of especially reporting is if you can get even if you have to get on a plane, if you really are after something special, yeah. you know, then then do it and, and show up in person, knock on their door or whatever it takes. You will get a different response. Like right now, I'm trying to report a piece and I've been trying to do it with a couple of people in Europe. I know I'm not going to get I, I you, you know, I'm going to have to break this to my wife. I got to go over there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. I got to show up on their doorstep, you know, and they're going to have to act differently because of it. It's like, you know, watch all the president's men. It's a great pr primer in that lesson, you know, where those guys and I would even say this connects to this book that I finally found. So much of what 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 it tells me is just how few people still do the old fashioned, you know, uh, uh, get in a uh, room together. shoe rubber, yeah. you know, yeah. the shoe rubber and the and the and just looking at documents and doing the reading, you know. Yeah. Like zeroing in on a topic based on reading everything you can around that person and finding everybody that's mentioned around that person at the time that you're trying to report on that person yeah. and finding out who's still alive and then going to talk to those people. 
that leads to gold. It sounds obvious, but I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've edited a writer or, 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 or you know, you know, got to know somebody new who, who wants to find something like that, and they haven't been throwing, throw you know, going along the old kind of Cy Hirsch, you know, uh, method, you know, mm-hmm. just like getting on the phone, having coffee, showing up. Yeah, that's it. You know, my wife and I were just talking about that. It was Jason Robards was the editor, right? And all the presidents. Yes. Is that right? He's yeah, awesome. Great. I great love him. Movie. Well, that's great advice. The, yeah. the in-person touch is critical. That and it, and in the end, that shows up on the page if you want to write yeah, something just, special. Because email is just as we all know. You know, you know it, and I know it. Like getting email, people just it's easy to blow off. You know, yeah. it's and it's easy to blow somebody off when you don't know who they are, or or their or 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 the or the look on their face when they ask you a question. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Can't see their sincerity. Can't trust them. Well, great advice. Jay, thank you so much for coming in. This thank is great. You, Pleasure great. talking to you. Enjoyed the drink. Enjoy the company. Thank you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.